Hey, just a quick heads up. The episode you're about to listen to, Resident Evil, Welcome to Raccoon City, directed by Johannes Roberts, is an episode that contains descriptions of blood and gore, child abuse, animal attacks and animal death, zombies, and ableism. Our hosts rank this movie as incredibly violent, but mostly not that scary. After the spooky music, we will talk about the movie in full, so expect spoilers. Oh, and now seems like a good time to remind you that you can become a patron of our show by stopping in at Patreon at progressivelyhorrified.patreon.com. As a patron, you'll get extra episodes, all episodes a week early, and most importantly, you'll get to help us keep the lights on. Now, let's get on to the show. Whenever I have one of these, a lot of question marks, yeah. I know it's been a wild ride. <laughs> There's a lot of question marks in my notes, too. There's a lot of, like, declarative statements with question marks at the end. I have so yeah. many. Should we just dive in? I want all of this to be fresh because there's so many emotions and thoughts and questions. All right. Good evening and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the show where we hold horror to standards it absolutely never agreed to. <laughs> Good evening and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the podcast where you'll horror to progressive standards never agreed to. Tonight, we're talking about what is the 13th movie based on oh, Resident God. Evil, not including the 28 games that are also Resident Evil. That's right. It's time for Resident Evil Welcome to Raccoon City, the title that just keeps on giving. I am your host, Jeremy Whitley, and with me tonight, I have a panel of cinephiles and cinebites. First, they're here to invade your house and find queer content in all of your favorite movies. My co-host and comic book creator, Ben Kahn. Ben, how are you tonight? Hey, quick question. What is it about this franchise that makes every filmmaker and myself just completely fucking insane? T-Virus. And uh, also, we picked her up at the spooky crossroads of anime and sexy monster media. It's co-host and comic book artist, Emily Martin. How are you tonight, Emily? Well, I... hold. Wait, hold on. What? what? There's, there's a truck? Are you sure? It... It exploded. I, I didn't hear anything. It must have been my Sony headphones. And our special guest tonight, filmmaker, educator, and activist, Jay Joseph Jr. How are you tonight, Jay? I'm doing very well. You say there's been 28 games. I feel like a, a, a pollster because I've only played something like 15 to 20-ish games. Well, a lot of those are the, <laughs> I'm going to say, 10 remakes of the first Resident Evil. <laughs> that, that's true. That's fair. Look, we can't count the Resident Evil 3 remake. If you have basic knowledge of the game series, you will go into this movie knowing exactly who will die and who will not die, and there will not be a single surprise the entire film. That's very true. And something else I wanted to point out that's also very relevant to kind of the early 2000s, more of kind of the mid-ish 2000s superhero film, is that this film went for a really strange kind of minimalist realism approach to the storyline, especially with the villains. And if you play Resident Evil, their villains are super over the top all the time, uh, even from the very first game. And in the movie, they weren't. They had to be like these kind of down-to-earth, like Nolan and and Iron Man, you know, they pioneered like down-to-earth super villains. So that's what we need to have. Like Albert Wesker can't be like this crazy super guy. He has to be just a normal guy who's down on his luck. And Jake Spear, like one of us. (laughs) That's the biggest thing from the games is Wesker. The, The biggest issue I had with this film... Since I, have, I haven't played Resident Evil, I'm very sorry. I've played Marvel vs. Capcom 2. I know Resident Evil stars Jill, and she is a member of Stars. 
I know there's dogs, there's zombies, there's a big house, there's Umbrella Corporation, there's a Raccoon City, and there's no need to stay here longer than necessary. We should split up, look for survivors, and get out of here. That's my extent of Resident Evil knowledge. But this movie didn't commit to something that it could have committed to that was like, the fact that it was set in 1998. So confusing. Yeah. Well, distracting. Like, why? Why? I, 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 I know the why. I think it's really bad. Why is just basically that's when the first game is set. The characters in the game actually age in real time with us. So like Jill, Claire, all of them are like, you know, middle aged right now in the video games. And that's interesting. So I think solely because the first game is set in 1998 and the timeline is so firmly starts in 1998. That's why they chose to do that. But I agree that they didn't commit to it at all. There's nothing that particularly like screams 1998. And when they do have elements that are from 1998, it's all like CGI. Like they couldn't be bothered to put anything into props or production or vehicles or but, anything like that. Jay, did you yeah. not see that fucking Palm Pilot? And an entire <laughs> shot of Wesker <laughs> being like, holy shit, texting! Wesker did have a beeper. <laughs> yeah. Palm Pilot, a beeper. And then the Captain Irons is like, you just take your girl to Blockbuster and it's like, okay, <laughs> Captain Irons, Captain Irons, I need to talk oh, about Captain Irons. Okay, hold on, hold on. Let's well, do the basics here and get into it because I want to talk about Captain Irons as well. <laughs> so it is written and directed by Johannes Roberts. You would think after the last movies and some of the issues they had there that they would look for somebody who maybe had an established record of like making hit movies. Johannes Roberts, on the other hand, made the second Strangers movie that was direct to Netflix. And a couple of scary movies about sharks. <laughs> All of his stuff is rated on the IMDb stuff is like the mid threes, like 3.5 <laughs> and stuff. I was, I was looking for like the one indie horror movie that this guy directed that they were like, we got to snatch him up and put him on Resident Evil. But I don't know how they ended up with this assortment. For the cast, we have everybody. Uh, there's Idisco Delario is playing Claire Redfield who is the closest thing to a main character this movie has. What's the art? What, what is the emotional heart of this movie? I don't know. The dog. Hannah John Kamen, who plays Jill Valentine, who if you know Hannah J John Kamen, she's in lots of great TV. And then, you know, she's in the Ant-Man and the Wasp movie as Ghost. She's great. Robbie Mel, who's Stephen Mel's younger brother, playing Chris Redfield. I am going to make a concerted effort to be nice to Robbie Mel during this podcast, as I don't just like being unnecessarily mean. So I'm going to give a really faint compliment and just say, was it wooden and stilted? Sure. Does that fit Chris Redfield to a T though? That's where, if I can just interject real quick here, there are two things that this film really leans into in terms of accuracy to the video game feeling and detail. One of which is the line delivery based on the one delivery I've seen, which is uh, no need to stay here longer than necessary. Let's split up, look for survivors and get out of here. And then there's the ammunition situation. But yeah, the, continue. All of that dialogue is delivered by Tom Hopper, who plays Wesker. Now, if you know Tom Hopper, it's probably from Umbrella Academy. But having watched Game of Thrones, uh, I still call him Dick and Charlie because that's the worst character name in the world. <laughs> I really like Tom Hopper in this movie. It's really weird how likable and charismatic his Wesker is. Speaking of some interesting line delivery, I really enjoy all the times his natural British accent is just trying so hard to jump out. Yeah, we also have uh, 
Aben Yogia, who is playing uh, Leon, the most incompetent goofball in history. And we also have Donald Logue playing Chief Irons, yeah. which if you needed to know what kind of yeah. police department this is, the fact that they cast fucking Harvey Bullock from Gotham as the police captain tells you everything you need to know immediately. Okay, can we talk about the insane decision this movie makes to have some weird-ass needle drops, but only when Donald Oak is involved? Right. There's fire zombie coming out of the truck, and then there's him running away from, like, gas mask soldiers. Those are the only two needle drops in the movie. They are super distracting, and they only happen when Donald Logue is involved. Yeah. And and finally, the other reasonably big name is Neil McDonough, who plays Birkin, who's the uh, evil scientist in this. For the most part, it's Neil McDonough playing Neil McDonough at about 75% until, like, the, the one scene where he gets to be a straight-up supervillain, at which point he is doing it as hard as he can and the movie just does not support it. I have to believe this movie's flaw is combining one and two, because otherwise I'm just left asking, hey, is Resident Evil a bad franchise? Once you take away the interactivity and just like, ah, it's me that's being attacked by zombies, is there just nothing fucking here in this story? Yeah, I, I, I think so. Look, I love Resident Evil a lot. I've been a fan since I've been 14, 15 years old of the series. I have so much obscure Resident Evil shit in my house. I have the Resident Evil archives, which is this super hard to get documentation of all of Resident Evil 1 and 2 and 1.5. I'm just like that big of a Resident Evil nerd. And if there's one thing I can say about Resident Evil and its storylines is that it's consistently awful. I, I didn't like this movie. I, I, didn't watch, <laughs> I, I enjoyed watching it at points. I don't think it's a very good movie, but I think as a writer, it was instructive because it feels so much like a great example of what happens when you just let fandom dictate a movie. It's 100% Easter eggs and no substance. There's all these things that you <laughs> might recognize from the movie, like the bar. There's a typewriter for some reason, because the typewriter is how you save <laughs> the game. And there's just, I didn't see that either. Fuck. There's this one point that's super weird where one of the zombies tackles Claire and yells in her face, itchy tasty. Yes, the itchy like, tasty. <laughs> I immediately was like, what the fuck is itchy tasty? Because I know that this is an Easter egg that is being telegraphed really hard. And I have no context as someone who's not played the games. It was just like, it's cool. You're showing me this thing with no context. Yeah. Thanks, movie. It's like there were a lot of moments that they, as fans of the games, felt like they had to have. And the result is that the movie is just a series of moments. There's not really any character arc. There's very little like plot. It's just like, and then this thing happens and then that thing happens. And it doesn't really make sense. But it did happen in the game, so we got to get it in there. They make up all this new backstory for Leon and then just never fucking explain any of it. Are you all telling me that you didn't want more of the truck driver that shows up at the very beginning of Resident Evil 2? You weren't glad he was like a full character now in the movie? I want to bore the dog. I want to say what the rest of the story is, is you start with Resident Evil 1. You have the mansion, so it's like a gothic horror kind of thing. You really don't know what's going on and you're slowly uncovering the mystery of umbrella and what's going on with this research and it's a very insular secluded experience and then you get resident evil 2 where it's the aliens to re1's alien and it's bigger it's in the city it's a wider environment it's more chaos a whole city 
but you know what's going on. You have the answers from the first game, but doing them together, it's like you're given the answers before the characters are. And I I feel like you don't get the intimate experience or the feeling of the escalation. Like it fails at delivering the experiences of both stories. That's my feeling having played neither one or two. So I might be talking super at my ass. No, I I think you're right. And I I think you actually bring up a good point. I hadn't thought about that because what you're describing about the first game, I think as imperfect as they were and as bad as they were, they weren't good films, but I think they were more enjoyable, entertaining films than this kind of was. The Paul W.S. Anderson movies, right? The first one, you get that experience where you're like in this very weird facility. You don't know what's going on. You're uncovering the pieces as it goes. So didn't like it at the time. I think as I got older, I grew a little softer towards it. I'm like, I at least appreciate what they were going for and they're trying to recreate the mood. You know, the, the Resident Evil movies kind of by default are just so cinematic and so weird that it's hard to translate them to cinema. And especially, you know, the interesting interplay between the, the Paul W.S. Anderson films, as much shit as they get, is that they were so popular, you know, both in America and Japan, they actually revamped the Resident Evil series and they wanted to go more in that direction. And that's why Resident Evil or ended up being what it was. You know, the movies get a lot of shit, but we also wouldn't know Resident Evil, as you know, today. The series probably would have just died off and gone away. I want to go back a little bit to <laughs> um, what Jeremy was saying about this just being a series of references, because it's to, to complete that itchy, tasty thought, it's a huge meme in the Resident Evil community, but in, co- in the context of the film, it doesn't make any kind of remote sense. It doesn't make sense Story-wise, it doesn't make sense as to why some zombies can talk and others can't. But in at least the original game, the Itchy Tasty was part of a document that you find. It was a note. It was a diary being written by someone. Mm-hmm. And it showed the slow mental breakdown of their brain. So it had a purpose there. It had context. And it's gotten to be such a meme that it's like, oh, yeah, now we have to include that meme in the movie. So audiences will recognize it. Ha ha. It's cute. It's funny. So. Yeah, it's like a movie made of memes in a lot of ways. What doesn't work, I think, to me about this is sort of the combination of the games, but also the fact that like Resident Evil 1 itself doesn't make any sense in that it doesn't actually know what kind of game it is yet, because when you're playing, it's a survival horror game. But then anytime there's a cutscene, it's an action horror game. You know, Wesker doesn't make any sense in that game. Uh, You're part of this elite task force stars. Uh, which is, you know, all these gun-toting giant people, and then you're Jill, and then, like, you're fighting off these zombies, and, like, the rest of the team is constantly gone. They're just wandering off and leaving you and dying in weird parts of the mansion. So, like, you never actually have the action scenes promised by the existence of stars until Resident Evil 2. You know, Resident Evil 1, you spend all this, like, time conserving ammo as you fight off zombies and, you know, wandering through graveyards and going back through the same eight rooms in the house over and over again to find the right key to unlock the right door, which if there's anything that this movie got right, it's for some reason, including keys and secret passages in this that are completely (laughs) unnecessary to the plot. I do like that Umbrella was more implied to be what is in the games, which is a weird virus cult arms race thing versus the Paul W.S. Anderson movies where it's just the stupidest fucking company of all time. In the video games, like, the money and being a company was just a side thing. We got into it for the viruses. In in the Paul W.S. Anderson movie, at least it's, like, memorable. As dumb as it is, 
And the characters are memorable because they're also kind of over the top. There's so many elements that suggest like if the movie just went in that direction and committed to that direction, like there's so many cool movies that they could have made that I see like seeds of in this movie. And I'm like, well, that's too bad. Maybe some someday those seeds will sprout. Yeah, it's definitely a movie with an identity crisis. Like I feel what you're saying, Jeremy, about the game's not quite knowing what they want to be. And I think that identity crisis has kind of stuck with Resident Evil throughout the entire existence of the franchise. It's always, it's going to be some level of exploration. There's going to be like a really creepy room with stuff that's going to pop out of the corner to scare you. And at some point, you're just going to take up a, a giant automatic weapon and be killing a giant that's flying over a castle, which is literally what happens at one point in Village. Spoilers, everyone. It always shifts from this survival horror to like this really over-the-top kind of action horror thing. In the Resident Evil games, at least as you progress through it, you understand that early on I'm going to be I'm going to be struggling to find items to keep my health up and to find ammunition. But at some point, I'm going to find some crazy secret James Bondian laboratory where I'm going to be shooting up stuff like flamethrowers and rocket launchers and all that. And so there's a progression to it. But in the movie, it was like all over the place from one minute to the next. One second, it was scary. One second. It was a small town drama indie movie. The next second, giant action movie it was all over the place. Yeah, and I think that gets incredibly evident as you go through it is that it didn't really know what it wanted to be and that it puts these constraints on itself that actually make the movie worse. Like flashing up the time and making sure to like try and keep everything happening at the same time, which like in the movie means that there's a moment where the Chief Irons gets back to the police station and says he's going to go call the helicopter and then 20 minutes pass before he actually calls the helicopter in which (laughs) the helicopter pilot encounters a zombie dies and then question mark the helicopter crashes into the house (laughs) okay i'm gonna talk about i have a lot to talk about i have a lot to talk about do you want to jump into the let's 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 do recap. recap we mentioned the time skipping this movie may is constantly making decisions that take you out of the movie and are distracting and the time and flashing the time is one of them because it makes you explicitly aware of how long it's been since you've seen the lot this character because i'm just supposed to leave chris has spent two and a half hours doing nothing but aimlessly wandering around these mansion halls accomplishing nothing he wants to know what the uh, time mechanic was about because it clicked for me at the very very end of the movie they were trying to make it a ticking clock thing Exactly. Exactly. Everything was going to blow up at six. So they had to be (laughs) out of the town by six. But they don't really do anything with that until the last like five minutes of the movie. Until the last five minutes. Because that's that's what it is in the video games. In in the video games, you always only have five minutes to escape like the last place. So the movie is constantly making me ask questions where it's like, wait a minute, didn't it take them an hour to get to the train? The vibe of this movie is somebody telling you a story about a night out they had when they were drunk. But they keep skipping things, and then you ask questions. They're like, "Don't, don't worry. That's not important. That's not important." Everything was exposition in this movie. Everything I had to care about. Everything was tell, don't show. Yeah, in this damn film. Like even that weird bit with the text in the beginning. It's like we don't need this. It's a small yeah. town. Yeah, <laughs> it's Raccoon City. You've said Raccoon City like five times. Okay, so <laughs> that's a great yeah. place to start. Let's start at the the orphanarium, uh, where. <laughs> We're in Raccoon City and Claire and Chris Renfield, this 
orphanarium slash hospital uh, after their parents die. Claire orphanarium. friends with some sort of goofy ghost girl who does not seem like a like an actual ghost at all. Just keeps popping up weird places and has clearly some sort of thing going on with her skin and is also creepy and whispery and she starts wandering the halls late at night she sees that this girl's name on her bracelet is lisa trevor and then dr birkin finds claire out wandering around and there's a sinister implication to him finding her and then chris shows up and is like oh well now she sleepwalks sometimes since her parents died birkin's like all right that's great wait redfield right claire and chris redfield that's your names. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> I was just so distracted by Damien Dark's wig in that scene. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that the doctor still called her little girl the whole time. I mean, like he couldn't get fucked to, I don't know, learn her name consistently. This movie had Lisa Trevor. Like, as if this movie honestly needed one more plot thread and character mystery to add on top of it. But it just, you like, you remember Lisa Trevor? We, no. They did a really good job of taking her design and adapting it in cinema. Like, she looks great, but it's, God, you so easily could have cut her out of this movie and it affects nothing. Yeah, and nobody seems to know what to do. even in the original, right? Like, she shows up in a remake of? Yeah. Yeah, she shows yeah. up in a remake. Which, again, I think it works when it's like, what is this weird ass mansion where everywhere I go, there's just deeper mysteries and fucked up shit going on. And this whole experience is me discovering what the fuck is going on. And instead it's just like creepy orphanage. Here she is. Yeah. And South Park had those member berries and this movie feels yeah. like it's counting a lot on member berries. Yeah. So this member Leon. We just jump forward however many years, to 1998 when the rest of this film is set. Claire is hitching a ride in a truck with this really shitty dude with a cool dog. Eating an egg sandwich. Delivering so much exposition. (laughs) He goes on a five-minute rant about Raccoon City and how much it sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Because... What was honestly anyone ever expecting from a town called Raccoon City? Well, raccoons are fun. But I want to know, somebody who has high tolerance, can you please do some research for me? Don't go over the top, but like, I want to know what this movie is like. If you take this scene and take a sip of some sort of alcohol every time he says the word raccoon, (laughs) because I feel like that may be like required. I also want people to be safe and not destroy their livers. I want to point out at this point, Resident Evil is a series made by Capcom, which is a Japanese company. Yeah, and raccoons have very different implications in Japan than they do here. Raccoons are like tricksters and like shapeshifters and stuff. And in Japanese mythology, yeah, we call them trash pandas, and they're crazy and violent and they eat everything. <laughs> I like, mean, so do raccoons. Dogs. Like they <laughs> definitely thought they were being so clever. Like, oh, it's a town, but it's full of mystery and tricksters. And then we in America. Worried about this American city, apparently. It's like, cool. So it's like trash vermin town. It, it's, it's interesting because the Raccoon City thing does actually work both ways as long as you do it well. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It uh, does. I'm just trying to imagine the town council <laughs> being like, the spirits of these people, that they're so bad that there's like, 
yeah, fuck it. That's our official name. We're just Raccoon City. That's us. We're the old raccoonies. Well, we're on the subject of Raccoon City. I want to touch on a little teeny tiny lore thing and like a little bit of a political thing and see if anyone else caught this about Raccoon City in the film. So so Raccoon City in the games, it's, I'll, I'll put it bluntly, it's not important. It's where like a lot of shit goes down. Mm-hmm. But in the grand scheme of the games and sequels and all that, it's just not an important place. It's, you know, where you go, do some crazy puzzles, and then escape two times over. And it's supposed to be set in the American Midwest. You know, that's the canon, but it's been in different places. But I think it was like Pennsylvania in the books or something weird like that. In the Paul W.S. Anderson movies, it actually seems to be a very rich sound because of the pharmaceutical company Umbrella. And they pumped a lot of money into it. And Umbrella had, I think, their little armed forces there, which is true to the games. And you mm-hmm. get a little bit of that in Welcome to Raccoon City, only not. Really? Well, and I, we have to fit the hunk Easter egg. Yeah, we have it to fit the hunk. hunk. We have to see hunk. But I think what's interesting is like, if you watch like Resident Evil Apocalypse, which is the one that takes place in Raccoon City, they have a whole PMC. And I think that's very current to the politics at the time where, you know, we were hearing about the Middle East and Blackwater and all that and, and Halliburton and having all these like corrupt private military contractors that would shoot at civilians and all that. I think... What it felt like to me, this is my read of it, what they did with Welcome to Raccoon City is they wanted this version of Raccoon City to be Flint, Michigan. Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. that was my sense from the film. It's, it's interesting since I didn't have the like the game context so much. I was making parallels with other, other uh, like small town zombie movies and also like Outbreak, which was filmed in Ferndale, California, which might as well be Raccoon City. I think mostly <laughs> raccoons live there. This truck driver speech we were just talking about, he is like, here's what happened. Umbrella moved out. They moved all their shit somewhere else. And then everybody left behind here is just too poor to leave. There's nothing to like here. Everything sucks. Everybody's sick all the time. And it's the worst. (laughs) Yeah. It wants to be like also a little bit of Pittsburgh. Like it wants to be like a dilapidated like factory town, but the factory of zombie viruses. Yeah. And and people are also getting sick from like the water supply. That's the other thing. People are drinking the water, getting sick. The yeah. analogy is 100%. I think you're right <laughs> on the money. Part of the problem, I think, with that is that they're trying to set it in this Flint analog. Well, at the same time, like, they've just made stars the police force. They're, they're not a special operations unit of some point. They're just cops, which makes it really funny when the fucking Marini and Dooley, who are the, like, useless cops that show up at the beginning and then mostly die off screen, are referred to as Task Force Bravo. Yeah. Like, presumably, they just drove to the, this mansion that Alpha Team just uses a helicopter for, presumably, to be extra. What the fuck does this cop, what do these cops have a helicopter for? This is what's wrong with America. Okay. Please. Yeah, yeah. Talk about arguably the most distracting thing that took me out of this movie so hard. That the helicopter pilot is Daryl from Letterkenny. Oh, I didn't notice that. Did not need to be Daryl from Letterkenny. And also, like, we were talking about where this seems like it's set. And the, like, pine forest that this mansion is in the middle in looks like the wilds of Canada. Wolverine is wandering around out there somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Just north of Flint, Michigan. (laughs) That's Yeah, that's sort of where I was going with the Ferndale thing. Because I'm like, okay, it's Redwoods. Like when they're in the town, they make it seem like small towny. Like I thought that yeah. was nice. 
but the super overwrought like the police station and then the weird urban scene with the uh police commissioner or whatever the, i don't know what they call police chief there we go big police man mustache irons anyway I'm off topic, but yeah, like it was other than the weird kind of spooky streets that very twin peaksy spooky streets that were cool. Everything else was like, where the fuck is anything? Yeah, there's no real sense of geography. There's not, not even a real sense of the town. In the games, it doesn't matter because it's just a, a bunch of Japanese developers taking, you know, ranchers of big western cities and structure it together to make a level. But I think it's nice. This is how I write. It's if you're going to have a location, you need to make it an actual character. I think this is where you get another problem with trying to cram one and two together is that it doesn't let either the Spencer Mansion or Raccoon City have enough time and focus to be memorable, iconic locations. They got the blueprint specifications for the RPD police department and for the Spencer Mansion from the developers and like recreated some of that stuff specifically. So like that entryway in the police department where like Leon is sitting at a desk with a giant gothic statue behind him, that's straight out of Resident Evil 2. And it makes no sense in this movie. I mean, this movie feels like such a weird case study with the first one because, man, the first one had had no references, almost nothing to do with the games, and drove me insane. And this movie is just nothing but references to the games, and I don't think it makes the movie any better. Yeah, I used to roll with another podcast before you guys, my virgin podcast called Enemy Slime, and we would, like, play video games, talk about them, things like that. So I told them I was watching this movie to be in a horror podcast and felt like old times. And one of the things our chief editor was like, he started watching some of it. And he's like, now we know the problem wasn't adapting the source material because this looks exactly like the games and it's still really bad. There's one sequence I really like, and it's when the mansion in the hallway is just like totally dark, except for just like Chris getting swarmed and the flash of the gun. And I thought, wow, this would be really tense. If I didn't know he has plot armor and is totally fine. Yeah. And at this point, that whole dynamic with the light, like we've seen several other movies do that really well. And now I think it's something where like it's starting to get a bit rote. The the trucker hits a girl walking across the street and the body is just laying there and Claire goes out to examine her. She did. But then as Claire and the trucker are talking, she stands up and walks off and it is not raining hard enough out there for neither of them to notice this girl get up and walk off. The dog the, notices, like, though. Yeah, the dog comes out and licks up her blood. And of course, we're like, oh, no, it's time for zombie dog times. Uh, because that's that's the thing you got to do if you make a Resident Evil movie. Is that why it's itchy tasty? Because when you're a zombie, your blood is tasty? <laughs> uh, no it's- sooner is this scene over than we jump to another new character. We jump to Leon. He wakes up. For, at night for his cop ship and drinks old beer from his nightstand like he's fucking wolf cop i don't know where he's supposed to be at this point that he goes to the bar and just goes to sleep at the cop bar while the other better cops hang out behind him and uh talk and throw a fake gun at him they're taking bets off of jill shooting something off of his head while he sleeps and jill is ready to do it with a full service revolver and wesker's like no i meant with this like toy gun come on what the fuck's this weird 
running gag of Jill is shoot first, ask questions later. Always down with a gun. I don't know if it's that I like Hannah John Cameron or I like Jill Valentine, but I was like, oh, I enjoy this character. She's charismatic and fun. And that's never going to show up in this movie. <laughs> never. Yeah. Yeah. She's, she's great for this one scene. And then the rest of the time, her main line is Wesker. What's going on? Yeah. This was like the indie 90s movie seed that would have been cool. This is the seed that was also at the heart of the dead don't die, but also didn't like flower. Like, I would just love to see this flower someday. And, you know, Resident Evil would have been a great place for that plant to grow, so to speak. So Jill's thing is being charismatic and shooting things. Wesker has a real gift for being tall. (laughs) And and he's buff. Don't forget how buff he is. Yeah. Yeah. Which uh, everybody's in love with Wesker, as goofy looking as he is. Uh, There's a have weird... Aiden, who is also there. Don't yeah. forget, we have a weird <laughs> Jill, Chris, Wesker love triangle that goes do fucking we? nowhere. They, they, just, they, they do some weird flirting. I don't know if call it a love triangle, but Chris Leon immediately like falls in love with Jill the first time he sees her. And also, everybody loves Wesker. I don't know what the deal is. Um, just, yeah. They set up a love triangle and just forgot to fill in the lines. That's what I'm saying. It's like usually a shape, like a triangle, has connection between the different points. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, love they, what is the emotional? Is it the Chris Claire relationship? Because they have like two scenes together the whole movie. Between the two of them, they have as much charisma as a tin can. It's wild how much more charismatic Wesker was to the point where I thought. Is the twist of this movie going to be that Wesker is a good guy and Chris is the secret trader? Even though I had no idea, you know, I was thinking, oh, it would be interesting because Chris is supposed to be like the good boy brother. We also have Aiken, whose thing is having cool hair and obviously going to be the one that gets killed. Nobody even says his name for half the movie. It seems like Aiken also can have long hair on the forest. Well, Leon can't because he's not wide enough. I don't know. Yeah, this is also where we introduced the two other cops, Marini and Dooley, who really yes, seem like the, the Hitchcock of this police force. They're just the guys that don't really do anything. And, <laughs> and they get killed off screen uh, just to be found later. But this is the scene where they come in and they all take a shit on Leon because Leon is the new guy here. He's a rookie who got reassigned from another city because during training, he shot his own partner in the ass. But also, his dad is a big-time police something or other. None of this makes sense because you can't reassign somebody to an entirely different city. Those are different Those are different organizations. Right. Like, yeah. Municipal organization can't just send somebody to a different city. They have to, like, transfer or, or something like that. We were talking about Flint and about cops in this movie and, like, Honestly, this movie doesn't understand how feeling upward works because if this the guy's dad is a police muckamuck of some sort, he's going to get a promotion, not sent to Raccoon City. As far as we can tell, this entire police force is eight people. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a helicopter. Like, and Daryl from Letterkenny. I don't get why you hired such a comedic actor like that for a role that had nothing comedic to do. I could have done that role just as effectively. And I'm not an actor in any way, shape, or form. And that's not a reflection on him. He's hilarious and wonderful. That's a reflection on what a nothing of a role that helicopter pilot was. Having a helicopter, having a helicopter pilot for this police force of like eight people is insane. On top of the fact that they're talking about transferring 
him over from another police station as if there were another precinct in Raccoon City. This is not Baltimore. This is not the wire where you can be like, ah, he was shitty. We're going to make him go work on the docks and police those guys. Like, no, he's just, you can't just send a cop to a different city and they have to take him. Well, we also get a line being like, oh, we lost the helicopter, but then they have a helicopter still. I don't know what the fuck's happening in this movie aside from every yeah. the game. I feel like that's more of that kind of Flint illusion that remained underdeveloped where it's like, we're going to have like an overextended police force. So we're not going to have enough people to respond to every situation, but the helicopter still had to be in there because the helicopter was in Resident Evil 2 and Resident Evil 3. So, you know, we need to keep that part, but also make this really small police force that can't be everywhere at once. <laughs> and the real, the real great end to this scene is, uh, that we have, it's just Leon and the waitress left in the, in the diner and the window thumps and they walk over and they see that there's like a giant crow that's flown into the window and broken its neck in the most like ham handed foreshadowing of anything I've ever seen. It's like elementary school foreshadowing. And the missed opportunity of the zombirds. Come on. I don't know if the games have zombie birds, but like. That's real Silent Hill vibes. No, speaking of... It has zombie birds. Yeah. Uh, they, they, they busted into the police station at some point. I forget. Oh, rad. Leon with the diner owner. The most realistic part of the whole movie is when she is crying blood uncontrollably, says she's been crying blood for weeks and that it's probably nothing. And I'm like, yeah, there's that American healthcare system. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like that whole bar scene felt like it was in a better movie. Yeah, Leon is the, you know, rich kid who's always had healthcare, I guess. And like, I think you should get that checked out. And she's like, nah, it's fine. I'll go away in a week. So the trucker from the beginning of the movie finally drops Claire off at this point. I don't know why we started so far from Raccoon City with her. And no sooner is she out of the car than uh, the dog starts slobbering massive amounts. And uh, the, dude, the trucker's like, what's up with you? And so the dog uh, takes a chunk out of him and we cut away as, as some action starts to happen. And Claire goes to her brother Chris's house as he sees creepy and clearly sick neighbors who are not zombies yet, but will be soon. And then she picks a lock in the most improbable way. <laughs> I didn't even catch how. The thing is locked with a deadbolt and she pulls yeah, out that- a knife and unlocks the deadbolt <laughs> with a knife. I'm not a expert at lock picking but i know that like knives and credit cards and these sort of things that are thin and you wedge in are great for picking a normal lock when like a, a lock's locked at the bottom or possibly if you really want to you could like jam it into the deadbolt and you might be able to get some leverage on that but mm-hmm. she just like pops this door with the knife in a way that doesn't make any sense chris will like surely point out specifically that it's a deadbolt for no apparent reason. Because she'll be like, you need a better security system. And he's like, oh, it's a single barrel deadbolt. What does it matter? And it's like, but how, why would you point that out after she clearly just stabs the door and it pops open? Like, Well, he doesn't have anything worth stealing. All of his tech is from 1970. <laughs> Did you see that fucking VCR that he had? That thing was like a, an antique in 1998. Also, he just has an exposition house. Yeah. Like, he just has his high school football helmet sitting on a shelf in his living room. Um, <laughs> Claire just <laughs> give that to you. I could see he was so good at football that they just gave him his helmet when he graduated. Well, they just kept it. 
a distractingly long amount of time in that scene. She did. She really did. That, I, I couldn't see her face. I couldn't identify with the character. It was just, I don't know why they did that. I think it would have been more fun if she wore the helmet more in, like, the rest of the movie. Like, she's, like, carried the helmet around. And then when zombies showed up, she put on the helmet. And she was like, fuck off, zombies. Katow, katow. I don't know. They also take great care to show this picture of Birkin and Chris standing at what I guess is Chris's uh, police academy graduation in what looks like a Photoshop picture. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why. They just really want to drive through that like Chris has accepted that this guy is his new dad, whereas Claire has run away and hates Umbrella and everything to do with them. And as, as they introduce Chris, some real dipshit, man. Yeah, no, Chris is like boring with boring sauce. Like I just, I looked at him and I fell asleep. And I think that's why I couldn't remember what the deal was with him and the lock picking. Cause like, I was alignment, moral alignment is lawful boring. He's, he's X-Men animated series Cyclops. Like he's just (laughs) that level of that. Yeah. (laughs) This is all very true to the character in the games. Chris in the game, he's not like the most in-depth character, but I think he gets to be memorable through just his actions and the way that you're able to live with him through the games. So they at least communicate the emotion that he's meant to be like badass, right? For sure. And and there's some other weird things that they did with his character. Like Claire's and Chris's relationship is very different in the video games. And it felt like in the movies, they put him on kind of opposite sides of the law to create some artificial tension between them that never really gets resolved later on. It's just all very bizarre. So, so what you're um, saying is that Chris needs to be punching a boulder in an open volcano. It would help. I, I think that's so accurate because Chris, to me, in Resident Evil, he's like Superman. He's like literally Clark Kent. He's not particularly interesting, but when he shows up, the bad guy is fucked, right? He has that crazy invincibility or he's coming with some kind of insane weapon to save the day or he's able to punch a boulder and and it's really cool it's like when when the the justice league or the avengers need a save and superman or thor show up and they're kind of a boring character but everyone around them that's a bad guy is going to suffer and here he's just your average run-of-the-mill like every normal white boy in america yeah protagonist jones he's barely a protagonist you know, he doesn't really have any sort of memorable character like Wesker's or whatever his name is, is much more memorable just because he has a Palm Pilot. Like, that's <laughs> it, you know, and the only thing that was memorable that Chris said was, what the fuck is a chat room? My brain didn't fully pick up. That was a reference to being 1998 because I just believed, yeah, this is a person who doesn't know how the Internet works. <laughs> My first thought was like, oh, it's 2021 and we're so far away from like chat rooms being the norm that he's forgotten what they are. And then the bomb pilot and the beeper showed up and I'm like, oh my God, right, that's right. It's fucking 1998. What the fuck is happening in this movie? Yeah, they, they, I guess Claire met this guy on a chat room and then he sent her a VHS that I guess he taped himself in front of a camera of him rambling to her. And then she has brought this VHS to show it's great. And it looks like, it looks like a YouTube video. It looks like something YouTube video or something you could pick up on TikTok only it's on like a VHS tape. And that's not what we did back then. My modern like brain with modern standards didn't even question what the, oh yeah, he just sent her a video. Yeah. What the fuck? He had to record this. He had to put on a VHS <laughs> he had to go to the post office. Yeah. Yeah. To pay, how many stamps did it take him to mail this crazy VHS of like to Claire? 
there's analog horror YouTubes that have better like screen artifacts on them than this does. Now, this guy, Ben, also is very 90s because of his clothes and that's it. But and I imagine character from the X-Files. Oh, this man yeah. who is. Do I want to talk about this man who has the stupidest death in the whole movie? Speaking of stupid deaths. Hey, listeners, I'm sorry. If you're not, coming to this movie looking for cool deaths, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Stupidest, I mean, death most caused by the character's stupidity. Yeah. This guy knowing that there's zombie viruses going on, knowing he's locked in a room with a zombie, having a gun, and not doing anything with the gun to take care of the zombie. There's a lot of problems like, with characters trying to deliver their exposition before they can question what's going on around them. I want to say about the cool deaths, like, like this is what I mean by at least the original movie franchise is fun, if not very well made. There's this dope death in the first movie where they're facing some kind of laser grid system and they're doing all these acrobatics. Yeah, 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 yeah laser grid. It splits into like a thousand different directions and slices. You know, their commander, the cube steak. That's <laughs> so badass. Yeah. That's fucking awesome. That, that scene haunts my nightmares, nightmares, like, to this day. Yeah, and this doesn't have anything like that, unfortunately. Yeah. There's uh, nothing it, as creative or as viscerally fun. Yeah. As the it does have lasers in this. What it does have is yet another point of view, because now it's going to switch us over to uh, Neil McDonough. We're going to see Birkin's house with his extremely white extremely straight family but <laughs> it has to exist just to remind you that he's in the movie because after this he disappears for the next hour yeah well like it feels like it's setting him up to be the bad guy because in a normal movie you have two or three point of views that you follow you don't follow every side character when they're off screen in this movie at some point there will be scenes that are filmed in which nobody is present except for at one point claire Chris, Leon, Jill, Wesker, Irons, Aiken, Birkin, Vickers, all of these things, like all of these people are like point of view characters at some point in this movie, which is part of the problem with the movie. Yeah. Like, it's weird that this movie is only like an hour 47 and I can still just find a lot of scenes that could probably have been cut. I was looking yeah. at a review oh, of yeah. the movie and they were talking about like, oh, they had so much to fit in in this short time. And I was like, was it short? It felt interminable. It really did. It really did. I feel like we spent five entire minutes just watching Daryl from Letterkenny play Snake on his phone. <laughs> it was one of the most memorable parts of the movie because it's like something interesting was happening. There was some legitimate tension in that I didn't know if he would win that game of Snake. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was so badly paced that we're being introduced to the very concept of zombies just before we break for the third act. It's actually really, really poorly paced. Yeah. And so we were following uh, Dr. Birkin and uh, he gets a mysterious phone call as he's putting his daughter to bed and he is uh, doing a real, you don't say, you don't say to the phone. Uh, <laughs> and he gets off the phone and tells his wife that they need to go. I guess his wife doesn't realize that he is a mad scientist, even though she will be right or die for him later. But like, She's not into running away until sirens start. And then she's like, oh, I guess the Umbrella Corporation is telling him to leave the city and everybody else that they have to stay there. It is kind of weird that one of the only changes they make to the from the Lord of the Games is to just take away all of Birkin's wife's agency. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. true. And his daughter. And his daughter. And with agency from both of them. 
That kid is going to need so much therapy. That poor, uh, poor child. As soon as the sirens start and we know that something else is going, then we're going to switch to another place. Now we're at the police station uh, where Chris, Jill, Wesker, Aiken, and Leon have all gone. Uh, and their police chief is Harvey Bullock, as I mentioned. Donald Luke playing Irons. He he starts talking about Bravo team, and I was confused. And then I remembered that was their Scully and Hitchcock. That's totally like these people trying to flex as their little police station in their small town like that's the only believable element of that is that like they're just trying to sound cool by being like there's alpha team and bravo team and xenon you know what? team i'm going to throw the bo- the movie a bone here and say that if they wanted to make them a normal police force but call them alpha team and call them bravo team and give them helicopters and all that for such a small town crew I could believe that under the Patriot Act, but we're about four years too early, given that it's 1998. Yeah. Yeah. Also, this town, what kind of infrastructure does this town have to have sirens and loudspeakers? Because when <laughs> fucking Santa Rosa was on fire, <laughs> you were lucky if you got a text. Um, well, was Santa like- Rosa built by a weird, corrupt, evil virus cult pharmaceutical company? Well, and you notice they use these sirens to tell people to go into their houses, not to run away from them. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, they're like, yeah. no, don't leave. Definitely don't leave. The sirens are to tell you to stay. <laughs> yeah, that's also counterintuitive. Like the, the fact that they're like. That sounds incredibly in character for the Umbrella Corporation. Sure, yeah. Like, nothing yeah. is wrong. What so they're going to send the up. Alpha team out to the woods in a helicopter to see what happened to the two cops that haven't reported in. Leon wants to ask questions about what this mansion is that they're supposed to be going to, and he gets destroyed by the police chief, who's like, I love this. Drops this chunk of exposition that I was like, why is this fucking here at first? He was like, you know, it was it's named after the founder of the Umbrella Corporation who lived there from this day to this day, and it's important because blah, blah, blah. And fuck you, Leon, why are you here? Yeah, like, this is a no Leon's <laughs> club. I'm like, this sure, is the one instance where front desk Leon, the exposition character might make sense. This is a character who would not know things and would be and is primed to ask questions. This is a more natural vehicle for delivery. And then became get the fuck out now as the rest of you know. <laughs> Maybe Irons like did a project on the Spencer mansion and he's just been waiting to use this information that he studied so hard in fourth grade. He has to go sit at the uh, the front desk to this giant gothic statue, which as I understand it, the explanation for this in the game was that the police station used to be an art museum of some sort, but that is not in this movie. No, this, yeah. this raccoon said he does not have art museums. I mean, it could have one. Maybe not that nice, though. It's definitely like somebody's house. The front of the yeah, I mean, station is only rivaled by the front of the police station from The Flash. Where it's a fucking giant tapestry in the in the front of it. Okay, so I'm really glad you mentioned the Flash because I feel like this movie had the similar challenge of the Arrowverse. It tried to figure out how to deliver definitive takes on characters while still changing things enough to surprise audiences and stay one step ahead of people who already know the twists. So you know that famous like oh. Harrison Wells' reverse flash is probably the best way. Like, you know, reverse flash is coming, but they changed just enough to like give you some sense of surprise. There's none of that. There's no sense of this movie trying to get ahead of a knowledgeable audience. 
Yeah. It's not only is it not trying to get ahead, but it's pretty far behind. Because I would say Risen Evil, the game, at least has like extremely memorable characters. And I, I do believe that's more of a feat of character design than character writing, although they get better as the series kind of goes on, you know, and starts to make them a bit more distinct. But, you know, it, it, it's it's a product of its time. It was born in the 90s. And, and back then, it was more important to have someone who was visually distinct than have their personality be distinct. Going back to what we were saying about the casting, about, you know, here's, here's this white boy and, and, and how kind of minimalist they were trying to play this film. That's really to the detriment of a world like Resident Evil where things happen quickly and they really do use a visual language to tell you that this person is different from the other. Chris is strongly associated with green in the games and Jill is strongly associated with blue and Claire's strongly associated with red and you don't have that copied over here or we have it but only with that minimalist approach where everything has to be muted tones and desaturated so you know there's nothing going on visually or personality wise or something that's making them stand out and if you're a big fan of the games then bravo and alpha teams are really really boring uh there is no barry burton there is no rebecca chambers the kind of people who are like stand out and had a little bit of of charm you know in those video games they're just absent or more white boys who had Literally no role in the games except for you to find their corpse later on. We can't have Rebecca Chambers. We need Scully and Hitchcock. Somebody's got to die. It just drives the line between characters who are franchise characters and characters who are actually expendable. It's a line in stone. And this movie does not deviate like characters whose names you know will survive. Characters who you don't whose names you don't know will die. Yeah, even if they do die, they won't die. At this point, we meet Wesker's uh, extremely 90s beefer, uh, where he's got a message from uh, some mysterious person that he needs to go find something in his locker that will tell him everything he needs to know, that it's it's time. Um, which led me to question, did Ada Wong, in her creepy trench coat, wander into this police station and put a Palm Pilot into Wesker's locker? <laughs> or has it been there for some time and he just oh, didn't yeah. notice? <laughs> I forgot about that connection. Like, I totally forgot, like, to ask the question, like, who put the Palm Pilot there? Because I was, like, so just uninterested in asking questions. I'm like, all right, movie, come on. He finds a full-on Palm Pilot, which is everything you need to know from your menu screen. Just press select to access your Palm Pilot. And then that's the end of that scene. We're back at home with Chris, his sick neighbors. First, they write itchy, tasty on the window. And then this is maybe the one like really tense scene in the movie because the like little girl scurrying under the table from the back and Claire goes, you need help. And the little girl answering, you need help is the spookiest thing that happens in this movie. Okay. No, that's spooky. What's not spooky is old sick lady zombie throwing herself through the plate glass. That made me laugh so hard. The zombie going through the glass. Maybe that was an instance of there being too much lead up of seeing it in the background, but uh, I know it's supposed to maybe a frightening thing, but man, like the kid under the table, creepy. Throwing yourself through the glass, I'm laughing. This is yeah. the only part in the movie where they're going to set something up in the background because you will see... I've pointed out several points in here, and it's in a lot more where somebody arrives off screen and fires a gun to solve a situation. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that happened several a lot times. In this film. That's this movie's like explosions to end conversations from Aquaman. <laughs> 
Before she can get killed, uh, Claire steals Chris's motorcycle and drives it across town where she's almost hit by Birkin going the other way across town because there's one intersection in the middle of Raccoon City where everybody goes. Apparently, they don't have the money to show the like show a wide shot of the cars almost hitting each other, which was a really interesting choice. Then it's just them stopped and a meaningful look. Claire yeah. the front of the helmet so that she can look at Birkin. And they look at each other for a minute, and then they both drive off. Yeah, uh, it's real romantic. Leon, meanwhile, this is the best worst scene of the movie. Leon is asleep at the front desk, listening to the hit hot new song Crush by the up-and-coming artist Jennifer Page. We all remember this song. It's just a little crush. He therefore doesn't notice that the truck driver from the beginning of the movie is seemingly being controlled by its dog. That's how it looks to me. Blank eyed. It's cannon. This hill very it's quick. Cannon. And it zooms to the side enough that you could see the dog staring at the truck driver from the background. <laughs> at the very beginning, the dog was smarter than him. Like the dog could open the door and the dog could see the zombie leaving. And well, meanwhile, he's like, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. And I thought, like, at the time I wrote, let the dog drive. And apparently they did. It really looks like he's playing Shadow King back here behind him. Frustrating and weird and hilarious. Because you got it. The truck is just barreling towards you. Like it's framed within the door. Anything like, ah, shit, it's going to crash right through this like police station. It's going to be awesome. Then it just tips over. over it jackknives. It barrel rolls down the last part of the hill and then like explodes. In front of the police station. But not right away. It just skids and stops. It's just long enough to be going, is that it? (laughs) And and then it explodes. Yeah, and it's kind of a weak explosion. This does not alert fucking Leon. The car explodes. Like, the whole trailer truck of gasoline explodes in front of the police office. (laughs) The police station is unaffected. The police station does not catch fire. There is no shrapnel. Windows do not break. Leon doesn't even <laughs> look up from the desk at the <laughs> The truck driver, a man who is on fire, like a fucking inferno, not a little bit on fire, but like trailing stunt fire into this police station, walks up the desk. Leon doesn't notice it. And then from off screen, irons, shoots one bullet from his gun and Leon jumps to his feet. He was <laughs> pulled down. Does Irons know that there's zombies or is it his no, response to a man on fire just well, better shoot him in the head? He does because then Leon jumps up surprised by what's going on doesn't ask too many questions at this point strangely and Irons says there's probably gonna be more of them you should go lock the gate like he's fucking Mark Marin. I mean, that's the whole explanation. And then Irons fucks off to go try and escape Raccoon City in a no. later scene. Listeners, I need that's you to all- know everything up until Donald Woke shoots the fired trucker zombie from off screen. Jennifer Page's crush is playing very loudly this entire scene. I t- listen. Listeners, two things. One, he's wild ass bonkers. First of all, (laughs) I know fucking the song slaps hard. Like the song does slap. I don't know if it slaps hard enough to cancel out the sound of a 
oil tanker exploding on your front step. There's that. And also, listeners, your suspension of disbelief will continue to be challenged very, very much. The first of two times that an entire ass vehicle will explode in flames and it will not affect anything. First of yeah, three. I know. It's, it's three. There's three. There's three. There's three. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I noted that up three. Yeah, we, have, we have to have our requisite. Well, that's how Resident Evil 2 ends. So this is how the Can, movie ends. Yeah. So let me let me say this. Everything that we've seen in the movie so far, all that serves like a function in the video games. And I don't mean like a mechanical function. Like you need this for a puzzle, which the helicopter does. Helicopter, you do need to do that for some puzzle shit. But I'm talking about like an actual narrative storyline function that they totally discard just to tell stories and just have it in like some kind of random order. It's very, very strange. Playing Snake on your phone? Was that a part of the- <laughs> No, that, that, that's, that's 100% original obligation. Oh, great. Oh, I'm so angry about this oil tanker explosion. <laughs> because, because that, I, I have not personally witnessed an oil tanker explode say 20 feet in front of me, but <laughs> I an open door. it is probably louder than a gunshot from a revolver. This whole thing explodes and a man on fire walks through the door and it doesn't affect Leon, which is maybe a funny bit until a gunshot wakes him up, which, which doesn't make any sense. Like there's plenty of ways to do this scene with the needle drop and everything without like this stupidity, you know? There's no shortage of movies where like somebody's listening to something on headphones and the headphones get pulled out and it starts playing and the whole place really loud. Crash playing should be so fun and enjoyable, but the scene is so such cockamamie bullshit that like I can't. Well, also, there's n- nothing else like it in the whole movie. It's two but minutes of Shaun of the so Dead weird. in the middle of, you know, Night of the Living Dead. We find the police cruiser flipped over from Bravo team. They leave the pilot outside. Before Wesker immediately splits the party. As soon as they walk into the mansion, he's like, hey, let's go in two groups. And Jill's like, I'll go with Wesker. And everybody else goes the other way. Uh, There's no need to stay there longer than necessary. They have to split up, look for survivors and get out of there. Yeah. How they decide to go about this and if they have any kind of plan is unclear. Chris, meanwhile, goes with Aiken, who, of course, is there to die. But before we advance the story any further, we have to go back to the police station. Where Irons is leaving. He's packing his shit into his car from the police station. And uh, Leon is following him, trying to figure out what's going on. And uh, he's like, well, if you're leaving, who's in charge? And uh, Irons is like, well, I guess you are. You're here. Uh, (laughs) And Irons tries to drive out of town, but is stopped by umbrella goons who are stopping the, the cars at the edge of town. Some other people try to get through the blockade and get shot down, at which point. He uh, turns on Journey and then fucks off out of there and goes back to the police station again. Our second and final Donalogue needle drop. This scene is really interesting because it's all shot from the passenger seat. And it's like a documentary. Like you can see the movement of the person's breathing behind the camera. So I'm like, who's on the second? And now I'm thinking like, oh, that, and then they should have made this movie a documentary style. Like what we do in the shadow style. Because that's what that's well, what there's like, there's this scene. There's the slow-mo zombie crush-like scene. It's like, this movie keeps making one-off stylist decisions, but it doesn't commit to anything. None of it adds up to a cohesive, like, style or, like, film language. 
establishing a visual language in your film in the first 15 minutes is insanely important. That's when an audience is learning how to watch your movie. And yeah. that's when you have to effectively teach them. And this movie has zero interest in doing that. They just want to mix as many different styles as possible. And when there is no visual language at all. This is maybe the place where the, the pacing goes the most haywire for me. Because we saw all this stuff with the truck at the police station. We flash over to the mansion for like two minutes for everybody to go in there and split up. Then we go back to the police station where he leaves. He tries to drive to the edge of the city. He can't get out of the city. People get shot. He turns around, drives back to the police station, comes out. And then we have the dog fight. Yeah. The truck exploding should be where the movie really speeds up and moves into its next phase. And instead, it's bizarrely where the movie slows to a fucking crawl. We're in the parking garage with, uh, with irons and, uh, we hear and sort of see bits of a uh, zombie dog who has apparently jumped from the cab of the car before it exploded and is now wandering around here, uh, chasing him and then walking slowly behind tracks. Irons is the most killable person I have ever seen in a horror movie. <laughs> he like bends down to look under the car for a dog, a dog that's trying to kill him that he knows is trying to kill him. He runs back to his car to grab his, I guess his service revolver is a six shooter. I don't understand that. He hasn't gotten very far in the game yet. Not not the old West. Yeah. Why would he have a six shooter in his car? That's the video games. Yeah. (laughs) He hasn't upgraded his weapons. I I don't know why they went with the choice to make it just like the one dog. That's some kind of super menace. Because in the game, it's the entire canine unit. So it makes sense that they would be all over the station. And here's like one unstoppable dog, true villain of the movie. Yeah, he gets shot several times and it has no effect. But apparently his one weakness is a fucking fire extinguisher held by a fairly average looking one who just like beats the zombie dog to death off screen with the fire extinguisher. And as soon as he beats it to death with the fire extinguisher, Leon does what's going to be Leon's signature. It shows up after all the action is done to point his gun at people. Leon's like, Put down your weapon. And she's like, it's a fire extinguisher. What the fuck's wrong with you? (laughs) I'm going to give this movie a little credit. It may not be deserved credit, but I'm going to say in their franchise brain, this is the start of the Resident Evil cinematic universe. The thinking is like, oh, if we make Leon really dopey and useless now, it'll be even like a bigger transformation when he's the one-liner spouting badass and like when we do the Resident Evil 4 movie. Playing the long game. Irons is like, I'm going to go radio alpha team at the mansion. He's going to say he's going to do that. And then we're not going to see him do it for about another 20 minutes. In between then, everything is going to go very badly. Because back at the mansion, Chris finally finds a zombie. And this is another scene that they like literally recreated the game shot for shot. He sees a, a zombie eating one of Bravo team on the floor. And he's like, hey, man, what are you doing? Get up. And like. The zombie very slowly like turns around and looks at him in the exact same way that it happens in the first game. Chris does not know what to do with this because as with everybody else in this movie, he is unfamiliar with the concept of zombies. Yeah, although no one seems to really be questioning it. They don't they don't react so much as just stand silently and like math meme. Uh, and apparently on Wesker's Palm Pilot is the game facts for this uh, movie. Because he sits down at the <laughs> he sits down at the fucking piano and just starts playing Moonlight Sonata, and uh, fucking secret door opens up. If this was a whole movie where you are exploring this weird, mysterious, 
spooky mansion where behind every corner is more secrets and more fucked up shit, this all fits. Yeah. As is, it's really fucking weird and random. Yeah, as this happens, where we we get fucking Vickers outside playing Snake on his uh, his phone, and then a zombie just, I guess, wanders up to the helicopter, busts its way through the window of this police helicopter, and I guess kills him because my sex is truly wild. Jill notices like in, in confusion that the helicopter seems to be taking off outside. All I can assume is that like Vickers got turned into a zombie, and then he was like. Why don't I take off in this helicopter and crash it into the mansion instead of saying brains? I think it would have been better if he, as a zombie, continued playing Snake. <laughs> so, so Jill notices the helicopter is coming straight at the house. Wesker does that. He is uh, still too busy trying to solve puzzles. So she like tackles him, you know, out, out of the way of this crashing helicopter. And there is an explosion that engulfs the entire room in flame that does not bother them. It does not impact the stability of the house outside of this one piece of wall. They do not get burned. They're not singed in the least. They're not even cut by the shrapnel of this helicopter. Yeah, no shrapnel, no nothing. The helicopter explodes, and then they leave this scene to go back to the police station. They jump back to the RPD. Claire, (laughs) who is there, picks up a gun, and Leon goes, oh, you know a lot about guns, huh? Think with it. She's just like chuck chuck like anybody would do with a shotgun. Like, oh, he's with a shotgun. I hear they do chuck chuck. And then he's like, wow, you're like a gun expert. Well, I think the implication then is that Leon does not know how to use a shotgun. Oh, yeah. That's how he hit his partner in the ass because he like <laughs> used it backwards. This is the part where I just wrote in the notes. I was like, how dumb is Leon supposed to be? It's absurd. <laughs> dumb. He's supposed to be a guy who's a rookie on the police force who has been through an academy, but he seems like he's barely putting words together. Like, he's like, man, you sure are good at guns. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. He literally says multiple times, I don't know what I'm doing here. He's like, we gave him a badge. That's a joke. <laughs> Watching Claire and Leon, their dynamic, it, it really reminded me of Rick and Morty, but Claire's sitting there like, you know, Leon, you're a dumb, stupid, weak, pathetic, milk-toast piece of human garbage. Leon saw it like, geez, Claire, that's a, you're pretty mean to me, but that takes the cake. I don't give a fuck. I'm <laughs> oh, Claire geez. Red fucking feel bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know there are so many Leon fans out there, but it's the most controversial choice they made was to, was to make Leon this this giant fucking doofus. You know, I've seen people who cosplay as both, who like love both. He wasn't like the crazy Gene Fondian, but he's always kind of like this effective badass. The first time you see Claire and Leon interact, he tells Claire to duck and he's headshotting a zombie. And then he goes on to save a fellow police officer. And then he's hanging out with a super spy in Adawong. He's, he's always been like super kind of dope. Yeah. This Leon is but, on the level of David Arquette in Scream. Yes. Yeah. Yes, Deputy Dewey. It's going to be worse. It should smile more. <laughs> because Leon then just like wanders to their downstairs dungeon in the police precinct. And he finds conspiracy guy Ben uh, locked up in a, a cell in the dungeon with somebody who's growling. Marilyn Manson. It's 1998, y'all. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, <laughs> it's a reference. This is the guy that like Claire came to town looking for because he's the guy that meets in chat rooms and, email- and mails people VHSs. 
And for um, some reason, he's in jail. He's like, I'm going to get out of this cell. There's clearly a guy turning into a zombie next to me. Steals Leon's gun very easily and very quickly. Uh, so and bad. And holds it all on Leon. Leon. Holds it on Leon to make Leon go get the keys to the cell. He does not first shoot the zombie next to him, which is his fatal mistake. And then, like... He gets, he gets his fucking throat ripped out before Claire can get there. And Claire actually has some idea of what's going on and how to fire a gun and takes care of the zombie. And now we see Irons finally call the fucking helicopter. Like He couldn't figure it out. He's a boomer. <laughs> it's boomer technology. I know, but he still That's can't true. figure it out. That's yeah, true. He, <laughs> he finally calls the fucking helicopter. Uh, of course, the helicopter is in pieces now. If he had called it when they went back to the precinct and he said, I'm going to call the helicopter, they would have come already. But no, possibly the most wild of developments when he can't reach the helicopter. Irons is like, all right, guys, we got to get out of here. Let's take the secret path from the police station to the orphanage. Blair's like, what? The self-same orphanage that I was in when I was young? Surely you jest. Like, like, okay, they will later on find a secret passage from the orphanage to the mansion, which makes sense in sort of the lore of things because they were transporting kids back and forth doing horrible experiments. They're not really going to explain a lot of that, but that's sort of what's implied. No, why? How did Irons know? How did Irons know? And why is there a secret passageway to the orphanage from the police? That yeah, so what's going on? Like, Umbrella didn't tell Irons about the whole zombie apocalypse. But they did tell him about the secret tunnel to the orphanage. Irons is supposed to be on the take in the video game. He's directly bought out by Umbrella. And that doesn't make it into the movie for some reason. I have no clue why, because that would contextualize everything in like a single line. And they love exposition so much in the movie. It could have been, it could have been something like, you know, Leon, Leon bumbles his way to Iron's office and finds a post. No, it's like, holy shit, you're on the take for Umbrella. Um, yeah. It's this movie going like that. out of its way to be more baffling. <laughs> All I can figure, this is my no praise explanation for this, is the people of Raccoon City don't like to see the children of people who've just died walk from the police station to the orphanage. So they just transport all the orphans through this secret underground tunnel from the police station to the orphanage. Goes all the way to the top. I think it could have made an interesting point. This goes back to what he has been saying a lot about how it's about exploring the place and figuring out what makes it sick. It relates back to why the police station is supposed to look like how it does. Why it has all this ancient art. So Umbrella basically built everything right and in every game that you see either umbrella or some kind of offshoot of umbrella is heavily involved in development of like the nearby town and some kind of containment breach happens and everything gets infected but they pour a lot of money into wherever they're supposed to be which is one of the reasons that everyone being so poor in this town and it be kind of being Flint, michigan doesn't quite make as much sense because if you do have someone that rich who's been around for that long, pouring in a lot of money, then you have something like New York City where you have like the Rockefellers yeah. investing in everything. What ends up happening is because they're they're paying for everything, they end up with all these secret interconnected tunnels to pull off all their crazy, corrupt experiments. And so in the game, it's been a while, like there's uh, the police station is connected by train to the secret umbrella facility. And I guess for some reason they decided that instead of a secret umbrella lab, which 
the orphanarium kind of is an umbrella yeah. but also isn't that doesn't exist in, in in the video game they really put some weird effort into very specific things i mean they also had every creepy the most creepy toys ever in this fucking orphanage but okay like whatever it's a horror movie like cool hey what was with the dolls what was the point of the dolls was the dolls just a fucking easter egg this is creepy some sort of explanation for the dolls at some point because they are so so fucking creeping get fucked you want answers to questions what kind of movie you think this is yeah go back to the front desk and sleep there until the truck explodes (laughs) from the resident evil wiki wikipedia you're not getting the answers in this movie just me watching it as a fan of resident evil so i have all this trivia. it doesn't make the movie make sense because none of it exists in the world of the movie the movie's supposed to be like silk team product but i know where it came from i know what its origin is and in the context of its origin it makes sense so then i watch it like as a filmmaker and i watch it as someone who's done a lot of adaptation and adaptation is like really difficult. I, I don't know what it is about video games that's so hard to adapt. You know, we're doing good with comic books now. We're doing good with young adult novels. There's some barrier still against video games that we can't quite figure out. But in this movie, it doesn't feel like they even tried. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like, like the counter argument to me wanting answers is the next scene, which is Wesker's speech to Jill about what's going on. Because Wesker's like, Jill, I, I I know things about the mansion from this Palm Pilot. Jill's like, what? And Wesker's like, like Wesker's answer to what is? It was just about the money, Jill. I didn't mean to betray you guys. I didn't mean to do all this stuff. Like, just has a full scale breakdown on her about like her her just being like, what's going on? Yeah, like Jill's at like, what's a Palm Pilot? Yeah, <laughs> uh, and he's like, I'm sorry, I blew it up. The dialogue is like from the. It's like from the room in this. Yeah. <laughs> like, like he's just he's arguing with her, and she's just like, "What?" Um, and he's like, "He's like, I didn't mean to betray. I didn't mean to betray you." And she's like, "You betrayed us." It's so wild. And then he walks into the atmospheric light of the burning helicopter. So <laughs> Jill's like, "I guess I'm not following him anymore. I guess he betrayed us. I'm still not clear on how, but." Uh, I guess I'm going to go find the rest of my team. Uh, meanwhile, the rest of her team is dying. Uh, <laughs> Jill's like, all right, let me go find Chris and Aiken. <laughs> You're not finding Aiken. Aiken. Aiken is clever girled, like, to death. And then Chris manages to slap fight the zombies off. It's he- preposterous that Chris survives. When it's all dark <laughs> and it's just him with, like, the flashing guns, that to me is the most thrilling and exciting action sequence. But the movie does kind of ruin it when it then goes to the lighter and it has the zombie getting closer every time he lights the lighter like a ca- like a kitty cat in one of those meme videos. <laughs> yeah, and it's Marini or like Marini or whatever the guy is. You mean Bravo Team? Yeah, it's Brad. The other member of Bravo Team. Bravo uh, Team. Uh, the secret path has led Irons, Claire, and Leon to the orphanarium. <laughs> and then like... For some reason, Claire and Irons are like arguing about shit. And Leon's just, he's just doing investigation. He's just opening doors to see what's going on. And uh, finds girl with skin face mask hanging out there. And Lisa Trevor is like, uh, guys, guys, there's something weird in here. You should come check this out. And of course, you know, they come to check it out and she's gone. Just like she is uh, when Claire is is there as a child. And then we get the introduction of uh, everybody's favorite Resident Evil creature, the Lickers, as they, a tongue comes out of nowhere to pull 
uh, fucking irons off screen. And the only part of him we'll see from this point on is his head as it comes rolling from the rafters. I it's guess like a- liquor is hanging out up on top of the, uh, the lights in the orphanarium here. Yeah. But then jumps down to, uh, to come after them. At which point, like, they're in danger for, like, two seconds before Lisa Trevor just, like, drops out of nowhere to murder this fucking creature. Just puts it in a headlock and twists its head off. And Claire's like, oh, it's my old friend Lisa Trevor. She just chooses the ask Lisa Trevor how to get out of here option in the the dialogue wheel. Like, what sort of friend zombie ET shit is this? Right? They're supposed to be like, oh, good. What payoff to that well-developed and emotional Claire and Lisa Trevor relationship? Like, fucking what? Yeah, and Lisa's like... Yeah, they have, like, one... And I have it. And here's the lock. <laughs> it's, a, it's a secret passageway to get to the mansion. It's like, oh, all right. That's, like, a full two hours of Resident Evil gameplay right there. Yeah, and so they use the lock, and they go in the secret they elevator. unlock. Yeah, use key unlock, and then, you know, the elevator opens up, and they go through it, and then they look at Lisa Trevor, and the door closes, and Lisa Trevor's like, Claire, and then fucking Leon turns to Claire and is like, your friends are weird. Can I just... That's a well-delivered line from Leon. I mean, it, it is a well-delivered line, but there's so much that I really like, okay, first of all, I guess we just skipped, who is she? Is she okay? Why is she wearing skin on her head? Do you know each other? Thank you for saving my life, weird skin girl. And, and they just leave her here. I mean, at this point, as far as we know, she's still I a guess girl. they don't know that the whole place is going to blow up yet. They're just trying to get to the mansion. But it seems like having the girl who can just twist the head off of giant mutants come with you might be useful. <laughs> right? Like, what the fuck? Like, like that. Hey, girl that it's has, you know, obviously been traumatized by this that I remember from my childhood. I guess I'm just going to leave you here in this fucked up orphanage in this town full of zombies that is going to explode. Maybe they don't know that yet. Like, but like that's the thing, like this movie goes for Easter eggs, even instead of like cheap but fun, like fan service. Like if you have Lisa Trevor bite Birkin, that is some cool fan service stuff that sure maybe is mostly just for fans of the game to enjoy but at least it's something different and new than what the games alone could provide and it's not just an easter egg and you could have lisa trevor oh i don't know give them some of the wonderful exposition instead of having another easter egg with the fucking village of the damned kids and you know oh we're fighting for our life and we're trying to get to the blah 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 and find our way out of here you, you know you know what's funny to me about all this stuff about Lisa Trevor and the and all that there's been some crazy developments around the uh, Silent Hill video game lately with the Silent Hill domain expiring and so some random fan grabbed it and he links to a very recent tweet by one of the character designers from Silent Hill, Masahiro Ito. And he says, you know, I wish I hadn't designed fucking Pyramid Head. And he says in a, a tweet replying to it that he's not going to explain why, but a lot of fans of Silent Hill think because Pyramid Head exists as this manifestation of the main character's guilt and it's vicious towards like women and it's there to torture uh, the character over and over again. And it's taken that that Pyramid Head has become like such a commodity mm-hmm. uh, that it just like as such a product and you just see it in like movies for no reason at all and i just couldn't help but think of that while watching the resident evil movie because there's lisa trevor without 
any kind of context whatsoever. Here's William Birkin at the very end of the movie. And, and it's all this recognizable shit, but it has no meaning to anyone who's like a real actual fan of that franchise. It's just a jumbled mess. I mean, it, and it has no meaning to anybody outside. I feel like they were trying to build some kind of storyline. Okay, so here's this orphanarium where they would take the kids and tell them they were adopted, but they were like secretly experimented on, which is also the storyline to another horror video game called Poppy's Playtime. And, you know, they would convert them into like kind of these horror monsters. And that's also why you have the quote Veronica people there. And that's why you have Lisa Trevor there and all these monsters. Umbrella is like a little, a little evil organization that's so evil to experiment on little children that don't have parents. But there's no connective tissue at, at all, at all this point with all the g-damn exposition that's in the freaking movie at no point <laughs> they, you know feel like they have to make umbrella a legitimate super villain you're just supposed to infer a bunch of shit and then you're like and then you have to sit through 20 minutes of them explaining the least important shit ever yeah i'm sorry i'm frustrated yeah. no, no that's, right? i believe it there's clearly on find this like room with the reel-to-reel projector in fucking 1998 um <laughs> <laughs> and the cool scrapbook about all the children that Umbrella tortured, like, it's not like, it's not any sort of like business document. It's like literally a scrapbook about child torture. Um, <laughs> yeah. Who was yeah. making that? Who was making the child torture? Oh, that's Birkin. That's fucking Birkin. That's totally Birkin. Yeah. It's a craft project. Yeah, that's a real Birkin. Like, that's a real Birkin energy. He was also like an indie movie director, you see. And so that's why the eight millimeter film was in eight millimeter or whatever real you know i love that where you have like these twins and they're like doing fucked up shit and they're like just standing there and then it like pans to him and he's like basically just thumbs upping at the camera like <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> look at these fucked up kids <laughs> so like a, I don't know it, mentos it feels like they're trying to do an mcu thing here like we're gonna get a yeah. movie oh, about yeah. these kids that's never gonna happen <laughs> no nope. Especially after this disaster. Um, that's the color of Veronica. Yeah, I, man, I don't know. It's it's wild. In between those two things of them going down the elevator and them arriving at the bottom, we have uh, Chris's fight in the dark with the last member of Team Bravo. And uh, <laughs> Aiken is killed uh, for to little fanfare. And then, like, Jill, again, arrives shooting from off screen to kill this zombie. To save Chris. And it's like, hey, Chris, we got to go. It seems like Wesker betrayed us. We should leave. She says that Wesker was just going to leave them to die, which is not what the betrayal was. I mean, we'll find out that he's supposed to be getting these these vials from the lab downstairs, I, which I assume was like his plan with splitting up. He was going to go get the vials and then be like, oh, guys, didn't find any people. And then they were going to fly out and he was just going to, you know, give it to Ada Wong. And all that is unclear. Wesker goes down to the lab to find the vials he's supposed to get for his mystery benefactor. But Bergen is already there packing up the vials with his wife and child. Watching uh, as he's like removed the rib cage from some zombie tied to a table. Look, I don't mean to tell you how to parent, Bergen. Maybe leave him in the car. Yeah, or like tell them to go into the safest room. You already know like this whole fucking lab. I'm sure there's a room that's like safe so they don't have to watch you and obviously be traumatized by you, like taking the organs out of some person shaped thing on the table. There seems to be a, it seems to be a young girl on the table with her like stomach and chest open. No. Okay. Uh, 
best line reading in the entire fucking movie is when the wife asks Birkin what he's doing and Neil McDonough just says, God's work. I don't even remember him saying that. Amazing. I don't even remember him. I just remember being really confused. (laughs) God's work. I'm like, you fucking magnificent motherfucker. He's just like, my life's work. Well, because earlier when they were like driving towards the mansion and then the wife is like, aren't we supposed to be leaving? And he's like, my life's work. Like he's a fucking Pikachu. Like that's the only thing he can say. It's him being really creepy and doing this experiment with a little girl's body in front of his wife and daughter. In the game, the William Birkin that we meet is already transformed and he's hunting down his daughter, Sherry Birkin. As Claire, you end up basically taking care of her and protecting her because as this entity that's purely the virus now, he recognizes biological material that's similar to him. And in very uh, 90s Japan hentai fashion, he intends to put his material into his daughter to keep the virus growing or whatever. And it's like really creepy without a lot of storytelling. And I feel like that's where a lot of this comes from in the movie. Yeah. (laughs) Again, it's like this is just so straight forward an adaptation that they decided not to roll with and they develop it into this whole big story with him keeping his weird storybook anyone can just stumble upon or torture kids and the orphanarium and i i really don't understand at all the daughter thing that's creepy as fuck but like the storytelling of this does really remind me of a lot of the japanese adaptations of the 90s japanese cinema yeah you're given the pieces and you're supposed to put them together. I mean, and I think Resident Evil, that kind of storytelling is there too. And it can work, but like, not in this case, guys. No, not in this case. (laughs) This scene with him and Wesker, I don't know. He he tries to like, Wesker already has his gun pulled and on him, trying to get him to hand over the vials. And so Birkin decides he's going to try and do a quick draw competition with this guy who's already pointing a gun at him and like tries to grab the gun off the table and gets shot in the chest and falls down, you know, bleeding all over the place. And is pleading with his wife to like get him his vials, which she does. She stands up, gets the vials and Wesker's like, don't do that. Put those down. And she doesn't. So Wesker just shoots her in the face. And he said, he says, don't do anything stupid. And she pulls like the gun on him. Yeah. Yeah. And then he immediately shoots her in the head. In the head. And then the daughter pulls a gun. Everyone's pulling a gun in this scene. Yeah, and I was like, I got a gun. <laughs> this is my family gun. He does. <laughs> I'm honestly still not 100% sure who shot Wesker. Was it Jill? It was Wesker Jill. From off scene. Because that's the Jill movie. Like, I wasn't sure because I thought Jill shot him, but then Jill's reaction seemed to be, oh no, Wesker's been shot. And well, she, she tried to do it from off screen and have deniability, you know. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who like, screw. Oh no, <laughs> the guy that betrayed us is now mortally wounded. Yeah, because Wesker grabs the vials, and then uh, we see that like Birkin has injected himself with one of them as he continues to bleed on the floor. The daughter is hiding. As Wesker starts to leave, he hears a sound behind him and whips around and pulls the gun on the little girl, which he happens to do just as Jill walks through the door. And uh, shoots it from off screen again. You gotta, you gotta keep an eye on off screen in this movie. The fact that he gets shot and Wesker's response is "You and your fucking gun." Like, what? Like, <laughs> Damn, this, this, that like, gun gambit is for a comedy. 
is this like aha we paid off like jill like shooting things like three times now yeah because like the first thing we know about jill is that she shoot well how am i supposed to feel about wesker dying movie what emotion am i supposed to be feeling something because you know I love that Wesker, as he lies dying on the floor, is like, hey, little girl, I never would have shot you. Yeah, he's like, I, I think I'm supposed to trigger. I'm supposed to be redeemed to death somehow, and I'm just going to think of the most fucked up thing I did recently. And try yeah, to. I wouldn't have done that. Yeah. He, but I feel like Wesker's in this movie is supposed to feel very familiar to us and, and very, oh, he's just a, just a cool, likable, small town guy. He's a guy that you could get a beer with and... And he didn't want to shoot the family. They forced his hand, even though, you know, he was very, very quick to shoot in gangland style. And so I think they were trying to build a, a sympathetic villain, which that's cool for Wesker. It's just they didn't do a good job. Yeah, like they didn't develop him. Like he d- had absolutely no development. The only thing that he had was a Palm Pilot. And that Palm Pilot was more of a pilot than he was in his own story. In the true fashion of this movie, Wesker spends his last breath on exposition. He's like, <laughs> you guys got to get out of here. They're going to nuke the entire city at 6 a.m. Start the clock. Like, and as, as soon as they run off, Birkin starts mutating and evolving and growing eyes in places that eyes shouldn't be. And immediately, like, they introduce the idea of him mutating. And then immediately in, like, the next scene, he is after them. And he is he's calling out to Chris. Jill has somehow gotten, like, through this gap that Chris can't fit through. And so, like... He's haunting Chris. Ben was mentioning this really like unearned, like you thought you could be a member of my family. You're just a dumb soldier. How is it that your sister is so smart and you're such a fucking idiot? Oh man. So we do get the fight where Chris shoots for the eyeballs, which do explode. Cause yeah, maybe it's eyeballs everywhere. Not the best strategy, but look, it wouldn't be Resident Evil without tentacles and eyeballs. Yeah. It's like, oh, flashing weak points. I got to. Hit that one and that one. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then slowly but surely, this is one of those boss fights that always ends with him beating you. But Claire has learned Jill's secret hidden move of shooting somebody from off screen. She she takes out Birkin, or at least they think they've taken down Birkin again. Claire takes Chris to the underground train, which we just learned about from uh, <laughs> Wesker. This yeah. train that it takes them an hour and a half to get to. It is 420 when Wesker dies. They don't get to this fucking train until 5.50. Well, that's because it was 4.20 and they need to take a break. You know what I mean? Claire and Chris on the train with Joe Leon and Sherry Birkin, tiny, tiny baby Sherry Birkin, who they've adopted now. She's just there. I, she's just on the train now. Yeah. <laughs> and she doesn't look very phased. She's just, I mean, maybe she's in shock. I don't know. Like these people just killed both her parents. Yeah. <laughs> but she's just like, I'm, I'm, we're going to sit in this train near this wall that looks a lot like animal pens. She, she walks out of that tunnel with the Red Stars being like, oh yeah, badass survivor team. It's like, what the fuck, Shay? Are you Maybe she a, shot. A real traumatized six-year-old. Maybe she have- shot fucking, what's his whiskers or whatever his name is? Vest- Vesker? Zombie cat! <laughs> we didn't see that. That's a zombie cat we didn't see. But yeah, no, she fucking destroyed whiskers. No, whiskers lips. <laughs> She doesn't have a long time to miss her dad because her dad has now mutated into a giant man creature. Actually, the one that she describes in her dream at the beginning of the movie. She wakes up from a nightmare at the beginning of the movie. Oh, my 
He's turned uh, into the, the giant monster from that. And he, he rips open the top of the train like it's a tin can and uh, just fucking grabs Claire and starts banging her against the walls. <laughs> yeah. So we get the ending. We get the way the, the monster's taken down. Well, yeah. So Claire stabs him in the face so she can get loose. And Leon wanders into the fight from the next. <laughs> That's next, all Leon does is wander into things. Leon wanders in. With a with a fucking rocket launcher. Oh jeez! Like, cool, I found this in first class. And oh jeez! <laughs> fucking rocket it's, launches this guy from ten feet away. I love it, how Chris doesn't throw himself on the ground. He's not like every other explosion in the world in any movie ever. Like the hero will throw themselves like swan dive across the screen, but Chris fucking just goes. Whoa, like there's a duck flying over that, here. That's a real Chris Redfield shit. Well, Claire and Chris are like so close to the blast point of that rocket and they're inside a train car. You have the fuel sucking the air out of there. You have the backdraft from the explosion. You have the shrapnel. You have the sonic boom. You have like a million things that are going to severely damage these people and no one gets a scratch except for William Birkin. And correct me if I'm wrong. But Birkin's body just disintegrates at the point. Oh, yeah. It's just gone. <laughs> yeah. Rocket launches cause disintegration. It, it's another Easter egg. The climax of the movie is an Easter egg. Where it's like, hey, remember the end of Resident Evil 2 when you used the rocket launcher? It's here. It's this movie. It's an Easter egg. It's like, this is the climax of the movie. And it's just more winking and nodding to the fans. It's ridiculous <laughs> and crazy and over the top, and there's no other way to end the movie, but it's just like, God damn, this is all there was. It was just references. But it's just not even... How in 40 of references. If they cut everything out, if they just had that explosion and people ducking, like, we didn't need anything after that. Leon fires the missile, and then it cuts to, like, all the records like, yeah. just collapsing. Like, that would have been funnier. And <laughs> I have the same amount of, like, question marks... You know, yeah. per capita, it just would have been funnier. And then they walk out like, did I do that? Freeze frame, cool <laughs> credits roll. comes <laughs> over to six o'clock. They're like, oh, shit. And there's a big explosion at the center of town, which we get this like not a real thing in the frame. CGI ass <laughs> scene of Raccoon City exploding and one single cow in the foreground to be exploding <laughs> in the distance. Like. It's a cat. one CGI cow in particular. They're just like not a zombie cow, mind you. No, just no a regular cow. Regular instant cow. cow. The town implodes. It's basically like Raccoon City, like just disappeared or something. I'm at the center of all of these hidden tunnels, and everything imploded into that. Like they and, built is this it, town planning in advance to just blow the whole thing up. They built That's that city on rock and roll, I guess. Yes, <laughs> and they built that city on rocket fuel. Um, fuel, yeah. A short distance from this explosion, they come out fine. Tunnel yeah. really collapse around them. They just walk out like fucking reservoir dogs at the end. Yeah, and, they, and you get another text, another text crawl there too. Another stylistic element that this movie does once. Yeah, it it is. Can. Like they could have did the fucking green CRT monitor shit for the the time cards. That would have been rad. Maybe my favorite thing about this movie is the post-credit sequence. Yeah, the post-credits. We see the body bag sit up and then fucking Wesker wriggle out of it and fall on the floor and crawl across the floor. And he's like, what? I can't see what's going on. I thought I was dead. And this woman like is like, oh, you were. And we 
we've done some stuff to bring you back, but not being able to see is, uh, it's, it's part of that. I'm not going to elaborate on that at all. She hands him sunglasses. <laughs> like it's the fucking master sword. Like <laughs> the most important shit. Like she is handing him Excalibur. She's like, here, Wesker sunglasses. If you played the game, you're like, oh yeah. Wesker, he wears sunglasses a lot. Did we mention the woman that gives him the sunglasses? Yeah. Is okay, supposed to be. She like, she gives <laughs> yeah. him sunglasses and fucking turns dramatically to the camera. I, he's like, who are you? I don't even know your name. And she's like, my name is Ada Wong. Thank you, credit. As if that means anything. Right? 90% of the people watching this movie. <laughs> there needs to be like a cut of this film that whenever there's a scene that doesn't make sense so most of them it then the camera just pans to fucking neil mcdonough and his like wig and he's like <laughs> thumbs up i did Talk this you about the avengers project like, yeah it is with the same level of reverence as Nick Fury being like, I'm here to talk to you about the Avengers. And it's like, I'm Ada Wong. Finally, this Sunday, I saw uh, Spider-Man No Way Home. And really fucking mild spoiler there here. At the very, like the post credit scene in that one, you see, you know, Tom Hardy as Venom arguing with the barkeeper, trying to find out what's going on in the world. He's been teleported to. And my mom and brother had come to see that movie with me. And, you know, my mom doesn't watch anything outside of the MCU. My brother's not caught up outside of the Spider-Man movie. And they were like, just so confused. And they were like, well, why did we sit through the credits for that? It's like baffling. So, so, so this comes around to something that I, I am dying to talk about with this film. Any way you kind of like slice it, whether it's as a fanboy, an adaptation, or as a screenwriter, any way you slice it, it's just really confusing as to why they abandoned this. And so I think Ada Wong and Leon, they go on to be, you know, Leon goes on to become this James Bondian type and Ada can be kind of considered like his Bond girl. She shows up, to antagonize him and manipulate him, but then they participate as allies and, oh, maybe they really do care about each other. Maybe they really do have this romantic relationship. And it's really nice. You know, Resident Evil, I'm not going to uh, claim for a second that it's some kind of master of storytelling because it really isn't. But <laughs> something nice that you get out of it is that uh, they're really good at making these kind of character pairs that you care about. And in the original Resident Evil 2, Claire goes to Raccoon City actually to find Chris because she's worried about him. She hasn't heard from him since the mansion. They're actually a really close brother-sister pair in that movie. And you find what kind of little sister she is to, to Chris because later on when she finds Sherry Birkin, she becomes a real big sister towards her. And I would say that's consistent from all the games. And this movie totally abandons that and creates their own character relationships that they never build on, ever. <laughs> I, I can understand abandoning kind of this roadmap as to who these characters are if you want to do your own thing as a filmmaker, but they weren't interested in doing their own thing as filmmakers. They weren't interested in giving us any kind of context, any kind of relationship. I thought Joel and Wesker were meant to be an item, but then they also weren't. There's just nothing there, nothing there to hold a hunt to. It's like, yeah. there's this, the movie could have done, but really built on the Leon-Claire dynamic. It could have given us this Wesker... Jill Chris dynamic of betrayal and love triangle to explore, but it also then had to go through the extra hurdle of connecting those groups for an act three, like being like all the problems in this movie that just stem from trying to do one and two at the same time. Yeah, even the characters and so many plot points, they don't have time for any character moments for the characters that they've introduced. They're just there to hit the plot points. 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, even a relationship, which I also thought it was originally going between like Chief Irons and Leon. Like, oh, this guy's a super fuck up and Chief Irons doesn't care about his job. And oh, they, they must be like a silly little buddy cop movie. It's just not interested in doing anything at all. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this movie bad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid this movie might be bad, guys. Yeah. Yeah, it might be bad. What if this movie isn't good? <laughs> I think we're past what ifs, my friend. <laughs> so when I was in college, I did my college thesis actually on Resident Evil Apocalypse. You're supposed to talk about the anima and the animus and how it manifests in film. And so my thing was Mia Jovovich's character of Alice. She ends up fighting Nemesis in the end of the movie. And I just totally broke down. Oh, here's how, you know, this manifest anima and animus and how they combat each other and all that. There's an action sequence and I got blind colors on that thesis somehow. But I haven't seen it since I did that presentation. So I started rewatching it right after... Welcome to Raccoon City. And it wasn't a particularly good movie, but it was a fun movie. It, it made me care about the characters at least somewhat, even without a lot going on. So it doesn't seem hard, but it was hard for the creators of this movie. Yeah, it's yeah. funny you mentioned that because it's sort of the Alien 3 for me. Like I did a, a big paper on Alien 3, but I think that movie is a, is a little bit less fun than Resident Evil Apocalypse. <laughs> so... <laughs> Alien 3 is like trying to do a post-mortem. It's just like, what happened here? Yeah. Yeah. Alien autopsy. (laughs) I had some fun watching it, but like we were talking about it, it felt weirdly long. Like, I think I had more fun trying to take notes and figure out, like piece together what the fuck was going on and how it related than I did actually watching the movie. It seemed like they had a chance to have some cool action scenes, but all of the stuff that could have been like really big set pieces is over very quickly and almost every time like ended with a very cgi explosion like the helicopter explosion is raw like for a scene that should be really extreme and really intense it's just like the moment that helicopter actually like hits the ground everything is complete cg there's no feeling of like stakes for the characters at all I feel like that kind of is my my thesis on this whole movie is that it's so busy trying to hit like points and show big explosions that like nothing really connects. Yeah. Yeah. It, it also feels like a lot of that. I think it only had a budget of 21 million, which is like nothing. And so it feels like they just defaulted to CGI for like a lot of things. And it's really hard to get about stuff like physics and blocking your actors. <laughs> I think to a degree, a lot of that stuff is forgivable so long as you're emotionally attached to the story, right? Like, yeah, not everything has to be thorough. You just have to be emotionally invested. And it completely fails to do. There's a few points, I think, early on that kind of piqued my interest. It's, oh, here's stars hanging out small town bar doing normal small town bar people things and having bets. And just like me, I felt that there was like maybe some kind of sparks flying between different members. And they just take all that goodwill and squander it and so that you just don't care and i think that's why it feels so long i I think that scene in the bar might be the best it's certainly the most acting of the whole movie (laughs) yeah Um, yeah because it it builds like this dynamic and these relationships between the characters that they'll immediately just blow up like both literally and figuratively yeah i I don't know It, it doesn't it doesn't do much for me and i think moving over to our like theme section it doesn't do a whole lot for me with any of our progressive politics either. Well, let's let's go over the actual talking points because I have a few things to say specifically about those. Yeah, do you think it's feminist? No. No. <laughs> yeah, specifically, 
specifically they kind of nerf jill like yes they establish her as a badass in her first scene and then she doesn't do anything for the rest of the movie not on screen anyway she shoots people from off screen several times i mean another kind of thing about combining one and two is that you close the door on doing nemesis the most uh, notable jill chapter of the resident evil franchise they actually, not only did they combine movies, they did something really bizarre here where they combine characters because a lot of Joel's character is now in Claire. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of those skills that she shows, a lot of those talents, all that's supposed to be like Jill kind of stuff that Claire now has. And so Jill is a non-entity. She reminds me a little bit, very vaguely, of Michelle Rodriguez's character in the first Resident Evil movie. Oh, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's just due to like the vague badassery and, and nothing significant thematically yeah i mean michelle rodriguez was emoting and had a lot better lines and was a lot more memorable (sighs) yeah i I feel like every time i saw jill on screen i was like oh jill's back oh no she's not gonna do anything okay never mind like i I like hannah john cayman and like i was excited to see her in this role you know as, as far as resident evil characters go i like jill but there's not there's just not anything happening there they make her uninteresting clear maybe takes a little bit more of the like badass leader role but then she doesn't do a whole lot with that either the one place where she has an opportunity to shine and fight something she beats a dog to death with the fight with a fire extinguisher yeah there's i guess off screen yeah there's also like oh wow you can use a gun a little bit which is not great do ladies use guns too maybe the biggest problem with jill is that she's one of very few characters of color in this movie and they make her kind of not interesting. <laughs> like, yeah, she could do she could do something. And that first scene, she has the potential to be a cool, likable, exciting character. And then she just doesn't deliver on that. Jeremy, are you saying the character traits of thirsty for Wesker and likes guns isn't enough for a compelling protagonist? I think it is. Mm-hmm. I think that's what he's saying. I'm actually going to give a, a, a really hot take here, too, since you mentioned the thing about uh, Joel being one of the few characters of color. With the exception of like the first game and uh, Zero, which is kind of a prequel to the first game. Mm-hmm. I feel like Resident Evil is a franchise that's very aware of, of diversity. Let me put it that way. Because even in Village, which is all European, you had different European ethnicities, right? You have Italian, you have German. And I feel like part of that is it's a Japanese culture trying to closely emulate American culture. So you're interacting with a bunch of different people. And I remember this as a little kid. Because even though I was playing a video game where the main characters that you played as were white people, I remember as Leon, he was entirely interacting with minorities. He was, in, he was interacting with like the black cop who was guiding him through despite his injuries. He was interacting with Ada Wong. And they just sucked all the air out of that for this movie. So that's disappointing as well. <laughs> and it's, it's rare that Japanese media really gets that too. Because yeah. especially when you have Japanese adaptations, like, film adaptations they don't have as many um diverse actors especially yeah yeah to to pull from as far as casting goes i, I think you know when you cast a lot of the same looking person and that doesn't that doesn't necessarily mean that they have to be of a different ethnicity but you know if you have a series of pretty white boys that all are similar in build perfect teeth you know all that it's really hard for the audience to distinguish them, especially when you don't do anything else in terms of the film, whether that's manipulating color tone or 
putting them in certain wardrobe or whatever, you're making it really hard on the audience. Yeah. Um, I remember having that problem with Starship Troopers. <laughs> yeah. You know, like a problem could... with the first Resident Evil, too, because you had uh, what Eric Mabius and another very like similar looking white guy in the, the group. And it's like, oh, wait, hold on. No, that's the other guy. I couldn't keep track. Yeah. It, it, like I just saw Birdman on a plane coming back from Los Angeles. And that's a cast that's, you know, predominantly white. And that's fine. But you have Michael Keaton, who's older. You have Ed Norton, who's younger. You know, mm. you have Emma Stone. So you have this really diverse looking cast that stands out in your memory. And then you come to a movie like this and everyone looks the fucking same. And I think that's why we also want to see more from Jill and Leon, because they're two of the few standouts that we get among who they cast for the rest of the film. Yeah. Yeah. And that, looking at our other stuff here, I mean, we talked a little bit about race in this movie. Weirdly, I think it does less with race than, you know, Resident Evil Apocalypse, which you were talking about. Resident Evil Apocalypse, not really like a deft hand at race, but, mm -hmm. you know, there, there are a variety of people in it. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Can I, do we find any LGBTQIA themes in this movie? No. Oh. It is Next so now. straight for a movie that came out in 2022. It's bizarre. Right. Like, there's not even an implication of any sort of like affection between any two characters of the same gender. It's just. No, oh, no, no. Chris has that one line. I want to be in Lester's arms. Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. We what got queer content on our hands. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's right the police they they or something. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> I also don't think this movie has anything to say about mental health or uh, disability. I, I do have something to say on that because the way that a lot of these zombies are depicted mm. are that, that there's this illness that begins the, the process of the T-virus. Now, usually in movies, it just is like somebody is dying and then they die and then they come back as a zombie rather than being like falling sick the same kind of way that these zombies become straight from sickness to zombie. And then there's a certain way that the behaviors and the depictions of this illness is made monstrous by the zombiness of these characters. And I was reminded actually of this clip that I saw a while back that was like some kids that had put together an animation project of a zombie and like showed it to Hayao Miyazaki and be like, look at our animation. And he's like, yeah, my best friend has neurological problems and he can't move properly. And this is like basically trivializing that kind of neurological problem because he spent all this time animating something that a sick person would struggle with to make it monstrous. And there's a whole, I mean, I could go on a deep dive about how that diverges with different movies, but this movie in particular, especially with the like kid crawling around and the people, the, the kid neighbor and his mother and how they were like the way that they were losing their hair and everything. And they were just from the get go supposed to be monstrous bothered me a little bit because like they were obviously people suffering. And then Claire was just like, well, fuck them. There was no real discussion about what the fuck was going on with the, what's her name again? Taylor. What's her name? Liz. Oh, Lisa Trevor. Lisa Trevor. Lisa Trevor had something going on. And like, also she had a single word vocabulary and stuff like that. And then she was also like a magical killing machine. They also, when they showed her file, it had like a thing that said dangerous. And then it showed her, and then it showed her spine that was like scoliosis. And I'm like, 
all right, you know, those little things did hit me as particularly ableist when we talk about neurological conditions being seen as monstrous. We talked about that a little bit when we talked about us and the usage of her particular condition to make a character sound monstrous. You know, I feel like that was going on in this movie a little bit. Yeah. So that's that's that on that. I, I feel that's a that's a that's a that's a good point. It's interesting because that is a license of the movie. That's not something that really exists in the games. It's always something different that you're dealing with, like a virus or a fungus or something like that. The the comparisons that horror movies can make when talking about mental illness or something like that, when it's I'm you know I'm becoming a zombie, I'm losing my mind, and then you can actually have something meaningful come out of that as a discussion about losing your yourself. But yeah, I, I did want to mention that because I felt like that was that that was an important kind of problematic bit of this movie and just how they show their zombies and something that a lot of other zombie movies dance around. I think that falls back into whether or not this movie has any other political message to talk about, because when you do zombie fiction well, it actually works really well as political allegory. I mean, that's how yeah. that start as a genre. Yeah, for sure. You know, and I, I did like the idea of... The Flint, Michigan, the expendable being an element in the movie. I mean, they didn't really explore how they should have, but they did very plainly expose that particular bit of uh, reasoning in the plot. Yeah, the movie introduces and doesn't have a lot of time for it, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like there could be something to be said politically, but this movie is too busy blowing up Pelagavish to say it. So I guess going from all of that overall, you guys think this is worth seeing? Would you recommend people go check it out? No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's gonna be a note for me too. It is somewhat enjoyable to watch as like a it is in some respects a good bad movie, but the dialogue is is not fun enough to make it, I think, worth worth the price of admission. Yeah, the Mila Jovovich movie is a lot more fun to watch. Much dumber. Yeah. And much dumber. Fun. Yeah. I, I, I agree. If there were anything of value to get from this, like at all. Even if it was just like a fun ride for all its other failings, and I could be down for that. And it's funny because I'm not very particular or picky when it comes to horror, you know. Uh, I might have snobbish tastes elsewhere, you know, like with <laughs> Japanese animation or in the character films. But in terms of horror, it's like just whatever. Give me something good and mindless and fun for an hour, two hours, and I'm good. And I did not get this from this movie. Well, yeah. well, welcome to Raccoon City. More like goodbye, Raccoon City. <laughs> Zing. Well, uh, with that said, what would you recommend people go check out? Is there something you think uh, along the same lines or better that people should uh, be keeping an eye out for? Well, I, I, I had a lot of fun rewatching Resident Evil Apocalypse as a pure mindless stuff. And then if people want more serious uh, zombie film, there is, of course, there's 28 Days Later, which I watched recently, which is good. And then there's, of course, the original zombie movie, which I'm embarrassingly drawing a blank on right now. Night of the Living Dead? <laughs> Night of the Living Dead, which is definitely worth checking out. It's just, I think it's, I think it's a fine uh, horror movie. I think it has way more to say than Resident Evil does, especially as a product of kind of like the 1960s. Good George Romero business. Ben, what have you got? Shit, I was going to say 28 days later. Fuck. I guess play some horror games. I don't know. The Resident Evil 2 remake didn't come out too long ago. Hunt that down. I've that never good. played it, but it's probably good. 
I'm going to go pretty sideways here and I am going to recommend the series that is currently coming out on the uh, last podcast on the left about MK Ultra. There's a few oh. episodes of it. Now, if, you ha- if you're not familiar with last podcast on the left, these are very rowdy white boys. Be warned. There's a lot of yelling, but it's actually really funny. And it is a very, very well researched. And I think they're coming out with their fifth episode this week on the MK Ultra series. And I mentioned that specifically because a lot of this weird shit with like laboratories under crazy mansions is rooted in reality. You know, for instance, there was like a castle gray raven or some shit like that. The real place that was used as a real lab where they were trying to figure out mind control and basically dosing people with LSD and figuring out whether or not it would mind control a person. A lot of this stuff comes from the whole idea of the trying to make the ultimate soldier and secret government labs or secret corporate labs underneath some uh, otherwise, I guess, I mean, Spooky Castle is not a, a very, it's not inconspicuous but anyway some of that did happen in marin though and san francisco where they did experiment on civilians yeah a little bit of history of the zombie apocalypse real life inspiration that sounds really dope actually i'll check that out what i want to recommend what this made me think of is the first thing i really remember seeing neil mcdonough in as a regular which is the third season of justified uh where oh yes an extremely <laughs> over-the-top Kentucky-ass yeah. colonel, which, like... Oh, that sounds like a delightful role for him. justified, like, it did is... Did you hear that? I, I don't want to interrupt you, but did you hear they're coming out with a new Justified series? No, I didn't. They're, yeah, they're, that, that's... Yeah. <laughs> I tried to watch Justified, but then the Walter Goggins character that everyone says is so charismatic and fun and wonderful... Had a whole speech about how Jews are dirt people, and I decided I didn't really want to watch any more of Justified. Hatton Goggins' character is the first. The first season, he starts off as a like the bad guy of the show, and slowly has a, a long term turn. But I can understand being turned off by yeah, I, 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 basically I, I, a neo Nazi in the first season. I, I, I can understand that. I can understand not wanting to be exposed to that and hear that, but. There's an arc there, and it's something that they do the each season. The, the way I think of, G- of Justified is they're like Grand Theft Auto bosses. You, you get to a boss of an island and kill them and arrest them and move on to the next island. That's kind of how Justified plays out. So it's going to move past that, but it can be a kind of rough watch. Yeah. Yeah, I think particularly like season... I haven't seen the last couple seasons, but season three and four, three is the one that you know, Neil McDonough shows up as this, I I think he's a, like a gunfighter and an assassin among other things, but he is absolutely like playing the whole thing at the level that like he's playing for the five minutes that he's mutated in this uh, <laughs> movie. And like, yeah, the season after that, which is the, the season to deal a lot with like race in Kentucky is really interesting, but yeah, definitely check out Justified. It's got a, a great cast of folks and some really interesting stories in South and I always love that's the reason I always get excited when I see Neil McDonough and things is that series introduced me to him. And and I think seasons two, three, and four kind of peak justified. That's like the very best, uh, even if you just come in for either season two or three, because that's how I saw it. I saw season three, went back to two, watched four. (laughs) It's good stuff. 
I can see the rest of it at some point in some of my list. To, to go ahead and wrap up here, Jay, can you let people know where they can find you and, and more about your work online? Yes, absolutely. You can find me on Twitter. You can find my personal Twitter at Cynical Angst, where I talk about general early stuff or whatever's on my mind. And I have a more official one for political takes that's at Panther. Uh, uh, shit. <laughs> uh, I completely drew a blank on my own Twitter. Uh, or you can reach out to me anytime at uh, jjj20 at columbia.com about film inquiries, educational inquiries, anything else. Nice. And uh, as for the rest of us, you can find Emily at Megamoth on Twitter and Mega underscore Moth on Instagram and Megamoth.net. Ben is on Twitter at BenMcCon. Uh, you can find him on their website at BenCon Comics, where you can pick up uh, the brand new Immortals Phoenix Rising graphic novel and their Glad award-nominated Renegade Rule. And of course, the podcast is on Patreon at Progressively Horrified on our website at progressivelyhorrified.transistor.fm and on Twitter at ProgHorrorPod. We would love to hear from you. Please come rate and review the podcast wherever you listen to it. We would love a five-star review. It helps us uh, get more listeners. And thanks again very much to Jay for joining us. It was great talking to you. I mean, the movie wasn't great, but the conversation was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. You know, this so was I, a blast. I don't, yeah. to, uh, I don't get to nerd out on Resident Evil often, so <laughs> that was a good chance for it. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and thanks so much to, to Ben and Emily, as always. And thank you to all of you for listening. Until next time, stay horrified. Progressively Horrified is created by Jeremy Whitley and produced by Alicia Whitley. This episode features Jeremy, Ben, Emily, and special guest Jay Joseph Jr. All opinions expressed by the commentators are solely their own and do not represent the intent or opinion of the filmmakers, nor do they represent the employers, institutions, or publishers of the commentators. Our theme music is Epic Darkness by Mario Cole of Six and was provided royalty-free from Pixabay. Thanks for listening.